Hey, it's Greg Brady. Hope everyone had a great Canada Day. In for Bill Kelly again, and this is the Bill Kelly podcast. So we started today talking about where we're at in stage two. In Hamilton, we've been there almost two weeks. So how are we feeling about it? What if this was the norm for the next several weeks? Can we handle it? I'm somebody that can tell you I get anxious, I get restless, I get nervous about a lot of things. But I think that's probably what's going to transpire. And there's a lot of no-fly zones for me right now in terms of doing new stuff. So we talked about it out of the gate. We talked to Dr. John Neary, associate professor at McMaster for a Department of Medicine. There's a lot of issues with migrant workers still in Essex County. Four men are dead as a result of working in the fields and also living in close quarters together. But right now, the policy is if you're positive testing for coronavirus and you don't have any symptoms, you keep working. And that's not right, is it? We'll discuss that with Dr. Neary as well. Barry Choi is a personal finance and travel expert. We'll talk about the EU travel ban and whether Canadians will feel confident in packing up to take a trip to Europe, maybe later in 2020, maybe early in 2021. Clock's moving pretty quickly when we think about it. And we talked about a couple things with Scott Radley, including the reopening of sports and a pretty important story and some pretty powerful accusations of racial discrimination at McMaster University and in their football program. They haven't been clarified, but Scott brings us a little closer to getting at the truth of the matter. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Thank you for the time. We have a great show today. Yesterday felt weird, right? Canada Day, but but not really. I saw, but I saw Canadian flags everywhere. I saw kids and, and adults alike wearing the maple leaf. I thought that was really special. I thought it was a real special day to sort of take stock. I think New Year's you take stock. I think birthdays you take stock. But more so than ever, I think we look and go, we won the lottery. Either getting born here, I was. And most of you were, or getting to come here, and some of you were, and welcome, if indeed that's that's the case. I lived in another country for nine and a half years, the United States of America. I probably spent the, the better part of a year in Europe, all told, because um, I went for like a five-week span when I first went, a couple three-week spans. I bet you it's, and for work, I bet you it's pretty close to 45, 50 weeks, uh, and mostly centered in, in London, but I've traveled all over the world. Okay, there's still things I want to see. And the traveling is something, again, post-vaccine, post when we're back able to do stuff. I almost said something besides stuff. Again, we'll be back out there. And I, and I won't hesitate. I won't hesitate. We were talking about a trip to California um, forever, our family. And we've, we haven't been. I've been for work. My wife's been for work. My wife's a sports writer for the Globe and Mail. Last year, she gets to go to uh, you know Toronto Golden State and is in San Francisco. Like, what's better? Outside of San Diego, the only thing better in California is San Francisco. San Diego, I don't know why more people don't live there. It's utterly, utterly gorgeous. All right. we It's hot outside, so we have a busy show. Um, or do you have a pool? Because I don't think there's – you should never assault somebody. I always tell my kids, look, that's not the way you know to handle it. But I also say to my oldest son at times – uh, because my youngest son's a little more aggressive physically with him. And I say, hit him so hard, he'll never do that to you again. He's a little more of a pacifist, the 14-year-old. But I'm like, punch him in the larynx the next time he gets near you, and he'll never bother you again. But right now, he doesn't feel that intimidation factor. If I had an older brother, 
I'm sure, I, and I didn't, I'm the oldest, I'm sure that older brother would have, you know, been stuffing me in garbage cans left, right, and center. But the the old kid, you know, the oldest son is like, he's a regular Gandhi. Uh, some differences, you know, hair, uh, but he's, he's very much like a pacifist. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't want you hitting anybody else, but your younger brother, yeah, lay waste to that character if he's bothering you. So you should never enact uh, an act of violence against somebody. But those that you are allowed to do it to, I think, are people who complain about owning pools. Who are you people? If you bought a house with a pool already, the pool doesn't come as a surprise. If you decided to, to do construction, put an in-ground pool in or an on-ground pool in, or even, you know, you got to dig a little bit to put an above-ground pool in, you are, it's 30 like it's going to feel like 40 in some areas of the golden horseshoe today. It's the hottest day of the year. It's going to be almost as hot tomorrow and the next day and the next day, et cetera, et cetera. Ad infinitum. You can't, if you find anybody who owns a pool complaining about owning a pool and they won't for these five days, but they'll be like, Oh my God, I got to open the pool again. Oh, I got to close the pool down. Oh, you know what sucks cleaning it? You know, the leaves get in there, and you got to buy chlorine pucks. Punch them in the larynx. Take them out. I am, I again, I'm a pacifist most of the time. But you chose the pool. The pool benefits you tremendously on days like this. Oh, uh, something, oh, the I got to replace the liner. It's been nine years. <laughs> There's people buying those little turtle pools and like stuffing themselves in it in icy cold water just to escape from this. Oh, but the resale value and, the, you know, you kind of cut in half the people who want to buy. Stop. Honestly, if we like, if we can learn anything this, through this pandemic, it's complain about big stuff, not small stuff, not small stuff. Okay. And yeah, if you own a pool, you can swan dive right in. There's probably some of you listening to me in pools right now. With the radio, like you're distancing the radio from the water, right? Port, you know, portable or otherwise, or if it's plugged in. All right, I want to talk about distancing out of the gate, and I want to get your feel for where we're at. We're close to a couple weeks into stage two, and I had two conversations yesterday I think are intriguing. And I feel like we, and I'll share those conversations, I feel like we should stay exactly right here for several more weeks. I'm not feeling as brave as some people are to want more. Um, there's obviously states, and, and and I don't think it's because of the horror show that's going on in the U.S. right now. I, I don't think that that's the case. So I, there's so many no-fly zones for me. Indoor dining, I'm not even close. I don't care what the numbers would be. I'm not even close to being able to be there. I'm cutting my own hair and plan to for the foreseeable future. And I'm cutting it so short. Think John Candy in stripes. Um, but I'm not wrestling women in, in mud. I want to clarify that. We've come a long way since 1982. I don't know. If we have a historian amongst us, you can tell me what your stripes came out. But I'm not feeling uh, the haircut thing. And I'm not doing, as I said, indoor dining. If movie theaters open, I'm not going. And gyms, that's a tricky one. I, I was saying to this earlier on Twitter to some people because I raised the same question. I, unless you make it by appointment, hey, you want to run on a treadmill between you know noon and one today? Make that appointment. 
We've got a treadmill available. Oh, sorry, we're busy then. How about four to five? You're going to have to make it like haircuts or physio. Gyms can't just be a laissez-faire come and go as we please. And we're obviously forever and a day away from indoor concerts, indoor sporting events. Two things I'm missing terribly, in addition to the gym, in addition to going out for day. And remember, we've only got so many of these months, okay? And this is where the pool owners will start to complain. Three months from now, you won't want to be sitting on a patio. I mean, it'll be a nice day here and there, but it'll be nine degrees and rainy and windy, and you'll get soaked. So there won't be patios to sit on. There won't be beaches to go to. There won't be pools to um, you know, go in when your neighbor's up at his cottage. So where are we at? Do we think we've got to hang tight and stay right here where we're at? Like maybe for the rest of the summer, right? Seven and a half weeks, eight weeks. 905-645-3221 is the phone number. 905-645-3221. You might be braver than I am. You might be not distancing the way that I am and my family is. We've seen three people, like three three couples. Um, but I think we've got to hold it right here. And our family, I'll tell you a quick story as we get your uh, phone calls lined up. 905-645-3221, pound 9900. 645-3221, pound 9900. Um, we're going to, around the 11th or 12th, I, I'm, I'm real careful with the dates and the and the timing and the location because, you know, people, you know, people just want to see what I'm doing. It's, uh, you know, they know who I am. So, uh, and they can go use my pool when I'm gone. So our family will go uh, west of London by about 45 minutes, like Grand Bend area, right? And we've had we, we've rented three cottages. My parents live outside of London, and they come up and they they don't stay overnight, but they come up and visit because my mom has like eleven cats, so she can't just leave eleven eleven cats. She'd come back the next day, there'd be seven. Okay, it'd be Lord of the Flies. But she uh, she and my dad come up. They're healthy people, but they're in their mid seventies. So I come up with my wife and two kids. My sister comes from New York State with her husband and two kids, and my other sister comes with her husband and their two kids. That's 12 people plus two people who are in their 70s. We're nervous about it. Of course we are. How could we not be? And we want to do more things outside than inside. None of this sleepover business, kids, okay? Um, distance within the cottages. Come in to use the bathroom, that's fine. Move it along, wash up, lots of hand sanitizer, lots of this or that. But I'm st- I've still got some nerves about it. Some of you do not. And the case numbers where we're going... And the case numbers where we live, um, I think we're happy with them. Okay, You can never be fully satisfied until it's zero. But we need to keep our foot on the gas. But I'm finding there's people. And, and I'm not going to yell at you if you're one of them. I just want the logic. I just want you to lay it out for me as to why you feel this way. Who are like, I got to get going on and living my life. My kids need to be in school. So my household can chug along and, and run operationally speaking. And I get that. You won't have to sell me on that. But do we need to stay right here for quite a while? And as I said, the no-fly zones, movies, indoor dining, your lifetime fitness, your good life fitness, all that stuff. We got to leave alone. You might even be swearing off the haircut and swearing off the nail salon and swearing off uh, the massage you've been craving for months. You might be more brave than I am, but I want to hold these numbers right here. And yes, the cautionary tale that is the states might be influencing me. It might be slightly influencing me because people have been reckless. They open too fast. And where? Oh, the economy. We got to save the economy. You know what doesn't save the economy? 
going backwards, closing back down, opening up things and having to close up again. People have had to hire new employees and then let them go again. We're watching this in countless states and cities and counties and communities in the United States of America. And we don't even want to go partially in that direction. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get to this uh, story on what's transpiring in, uh, in Essex County with the migrant workers. And if anything, let me update you on the very, very latest and then explain where I'm at. And then uh, really eager to bring on uh, Dr. Neary, who's going to join us to discuss it. But um, it's been it's been wrong. Um, th- there's an awful lot of problems with how the policy for the province has been, clearly how some of these farms have been run. You saw the premier get very, very upset about it a couple weeks ago, and I admire that forthrightness, and I admire that, um, you know, you know, there's a sense of humanity about it, but the province has the wrong policy. Okay, Windsor-Essex has seen huge spikes. This is the reason they're in stage one, huge spikes of COVID-19, and just this past Sunday and Monday. Of the new cases, 196 involved workers in the agri-farm section, okay? Four people have died in that region after testing positive for COVID-19, and these aren't older people, okay? But where are we at? We look at the things we did and realized way, way too late about LTCs, about retirement homes. So we got to ask ourselves, is is a life a life? I, I think we can agree, and I think if you're 78, you'd agree... You know, if you're 78 and you're on the on a street corner and you see a six-year-old about to get run over by a car, you'd sacrifice your life for that life. That's the concept anyway. I hope when I'm 78, I feel that way. I don't want anybody get to get hit by the car. But what are we doing? Are their lives not as important as the rest of ours? Are their lives not as important as the grandmas and grandpas and, and aunts and uncles that are in these LTCs? And they are sending people to work. When they are testing positive still, even if they are asymptomatic, here's the quote from Monday's news conference from Health Minister Christine Elliott. We only want the people who are well, who are feeling well, they're positive, but they are truly asymptomatic to be going back to work. No, no. Do you understand anything about science or health? You're four months into this. You're not a random, uh, you know, Joe or Mary lunch bucket. You're the health minister of the province. You can't send people with positive tests back to work, but they have been, and they're allowing it, and they're not stepping in. And that's why you've got people stepping in saying, what will the federal government do about this? Like, our province is doing a lot of things right. Here, they're failing us. I want to bring on Dr. John Neary, associate professor for the Division of General Internal Medicine at the excellent McMaster University. I love Mac. Dr. Neary, thanks very much for taking the time to uh, spend a few minutes with me today. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Well, do I have this right? Are we failing um, these workers uh, in Windsor-Essex? We're, we're not letting the people down there get out of stage one, and we're allowing people who with positive tests, if they feel fine, not realizing how much asymptomatic spread there has been documented around the planet, and we're letting them work. I think we are failing them. Um, I would actually go on to say that I think we have failed these people for a long time that the deeper issues that have, that have created this crisis um, have to do with the, lack of, with the lack of status that these migrant workers have in Canada, mm-hmm. um, their absolute precarity, their utter reliance on their employers for their very presence in this country. 
I think many federal and provincial governments have made decisions over a long period of time that have set the stage for this public health crisis, um, which has then been um, exacerbated by more recent decisions by the provincial government. And I would go on to say that there are, although the group of healthcare professionals that I'm involved with has, um, has now written this letter asking for the recent guidance to be reversed, and I think you know, that's an important issue. There are long-established advocates in this space who have been sounding these alarms for years um, and whose, uh, whose work and whose clear calls for action have largely gone unrecognized on political levels. Yeah, look. Talking groups like Justicia for, Mig- for Migrant Workers or like the Migrant Health- Worker Health Project. Yeah, it, it's it's the work itself uh, they're doing, Dr. Neary, but it's as well uh, the, the living conditions. And I, you know, again, uh, ignorance is bliss. I would not have known you've got 20 men living under one roof. In some cases, you've got 10 men to a toilet, 10 men to a shower. Look, in, in normal circumstances, you could we could send our kids to the, the nicest, richest summer camp. And yeah, there's going to be, uh, you know, eight people living under the same roof. But not in the not during a global pandemic, not when there's an outbreak of a virus that is traveling like this one is. Yeah, I think you make a really good point there, which which is you know I think hard for some people to appreciate who aren't familiar with this issue, which is that um, you know, some of these operations are what I think sociologists might call total institutions, where the where these farm workers they live in housing provided by the agribusiness. They're there six and a half days a week. You know, they can't really leave the premises. Their residence and their employment is all tied up in one package, which is which has very little um, openness to the rest of society. We've heard cases of even, um, you know, testing vans being turned away at some of these operations because you know, the agribusiness operators don't want to know if their you know, workers are sick. I That's mean, right. Where, where else in, in Canadian society would one person have authority over whether another can be tested for disease? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A, a large corporation doing this, it would be, it would be, a, it would be a scandal. And the struggle is as well. And I think people could at least relate to this. Uh, these workers have, you know, come from another country. They, you know, and they don't trust. They don't trust the government situation. They may not trust healthcare workers. Even they are, you know, they are here. They feel privileged to be here. Um, and they are, you know, they want to be very, they want to be as anonymous as they can be is the best way I can put it. And obviously laying your health on the line is, is a very private matter sometimes. Absolutely, Greg. And, you know, I, I've just learned in media reports recently that, you know, that a lot of people think there are about 2,000 undocumented migrant agricultural workers in the Leamington area. You aren't even here on the official program, you know, but are here, you know, without, you know, like outside of that official program. You know, and those people would have even more precarity than the ones who are here on the official program, where they are still entirely at the whim of their employer for their sheer presence in Canada. So going back to what you, the, the statement you quoted from Christine Elliott earlier on, Christine Elliott, she's an intelligent woman, and she's been in government for a long time. And I say that because I would like to think that her comments are naive, but I really find it hard to think that they're naive because I think she knows better than that. I think she knows full well that these workers are not empowered to declare if they have symptoms. 
because they fear retribution. Yeah, yeah. In some cases, they very likely don't even know what the symptoms are, because you know, who's, tra- who's translating anosmia into Spanish for them? Um, you know, that the, the farm operators may not be giving them the opportunity to declare symptoms. It may be hard to distinguish early symptoms of COVID-19 from how you're going to feel from working in a field in the weather you just described for 12 hours a day. Um, and that regardless of all of that, we know that asymptomatic people can still spread COVID-19. And for this guidance to have come out from the Chief Medical Officer of Health, packaged in with a set of announcements about the agricultural sector, really suggests that the promotion of public health is not the priority here, that the priority is keeping agribusiness going no matter what, and that the health and the lives of migrant agricultural workers are considered to be something that can be sacrificed on that altar. Yeah, that's exactly, uh, I couldn't, there's no way I could put it as well as you just did. Dr. John Neary, uh, Associate Professor, Division of General Internal Medicine at McMaster. I want to read you and the audience uh, a quote. This is from a CBC story from Monday, so it's recent, from a worker who didn't want to use his real name. I didn't want to work because I was already feeling sick. Everyone was getting ill, but they sent us to work all the same. We traveled in vehicles containing as many as 20 people at a time. There were no... Uh, coronavirus measures. No masks, no gloves, no goggles, no information. Again, where are we? We are, we all acknowledge we're better than this. We all acknowledge this is something that shouldn't be happening here. And if it was happening with anyone else and certainly anybody with a, with a Canadian passport, um, it'd be scandalous. Yeah, Greg, I'm, um, I think you're coming to an uncomfortable truth there, which is that, um, you know, Unfortunately, I think this is part of who we are. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently in you know, lots of circles about systemic racism. And I think, you know, when you have a cohort of people who are predominantly black, Latino, Latina, mm-hmm. who are denied the civil rights that everyone else has in society, who are allowed to be put to work when they're ill with pandemic disease or to work with other people who have pandemic disease, you know, whose health and lives are considered expendable by society in the interest of growing cash crops. I think that's what systemic racism is in 2020. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to argue. I got to keep moving. Doctor, I love having you on. Thank you very much for doing this today. Thanks very much, Greg, and thanks for taking up this very important issue. Not at all. Uh, Dr. John Neary, associate professor, Department of Medicine at McMaster University. You know what? I want to take some calls on this. Do we have this so wrong here? Again, the, the province... Is do I don't believe Doug Ford, Christine Elliott, I don't think they go to bed at night and go, well, it's just going fantastically. I don't doubt there are sleepless nights. There are agonizing moments uh, in terms of keeping 15, 16 million people safe and moving us back because you've got economic worries. You've got a lot of people banging on the door, not a majority, saying, open us back up. We are doing much, much better. We've done the work. We've done the heavy lifting. We've done the physical heavy lifting. We've done the emotional heavy lifting. And you and I both know those are two separate things sometimes. You can do the one and not be good with the other. Okay? Our number is 905-645-3221. Do we have this absolutely wrong here? Is the province wrong in enacting this policy? <laughs> and, and it shouldn't, again, I'd love to hear the counteract, but I'm mad about it. I'm mad about I, I can even understand, okay? I can understand the masks in the province saying, 
let's leave it up to the municipalities because they are right. It's not the same in downtown Toronto as it is in, you know, Rainy River or Timmins or even, you know, going to to Godbridge, Ontario, okay, where I lost a lot of hockey games in my existence. I think we beat them once out of eight times. Good, good, good group of men, good group of young men out in Godbridge. Have we got this wrong that if you are positive testing but showing no symptoms, it's right back out there into the fields. It's right back out there into living with nine other men and using one shower and one toilet and eating your boxed lunch. What is that? Where are we? I'll read you the quote from Christine Elliott again. I don't get it. This is a smart person. This is a person that has proven many times that she cares about Ontario and cares about our citizens. But this is way, way off. I'll read you the, you know what? I'll read you the quote on the way back. Actually, let, let me do it again right here. We only want the people who are well, who are feeling well. They're positive, but they are truly asymptomatic to be going back to work. You know, the exams aren't to make sure that asymptomatic workers aren't showing any symptoms. It's very simple. Positive, you don't work. Negative, you do. And we test you every damn day. That's the least we owe you. That's the absolute minimum that we owe somebody making $13 an hour, working today when the Humidex is 40, out in the fields, so you and I can eat at night and in the morning. And restaurants can get food and grocery stores can get food. Okay? I'm well aware there has to be a supply chain. I'm well aware that, as I've said before, we can't fully provide equality to everybody at all times. We can't. We can try. We can provide equal opportunity. We can't provide equality. Life doesn't work that way. But this needs fixing. Am I wrong? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So the story, I think, is twofold about the, uh, the European Union ban on the U.S. First of all, it's that Canadians and folks from other countries that have the virus under control can go there. Uh, the other significant story is obviously Americans can't. And I don't think it's, you know, some have called it a blow to U.S. prestige. If you're thinking logically, and I look, I, I said it before, my son was born in the States, met my wife in the States. A lot of great things happened to me living in the States. Personally, I had a great time. It was, it, uh, you know, it was a little bit of time to move back. Some of the circumstances, um, you know, made that happen. But I, I love being back. I felt it all day yesterday, uh, just a swell of pride uh, about Canada. But this is, you know, Americans probably pretending they live in the greatest country in the world. Um, it's, it's, it's troublesome. It's tricky. The greatest country in the world wouldn't be banned from European travel right now. So then there's still there's always going to be a lot I love about my history in the U.S. and what it is compared to other countries with their resources. But bottom lining it, the quality of life for the average American is not what it should be. It's not what it should be capable of. It won't matter who the next president is. A lot of those things won't improve and they should. But. The travel ban was a stark reminder of and, and really a stinging rebuke to how the coronavirus has been managed. Um, it's problematic in a big, big way. I want to bring in personal finance and travel expert. Uh, you can go to the website moneywehave.com to find out more. But uh, Barry Choi is our guest. Barry, it's Greg Brady. Thanks very much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. 
Um, so it, it probably not a surprise that the Americans are banned. Um, but what is a surprise that the EU said, let's let's open our borders. We are, you know, we're getting back to being open for business as far as tourism is concerned. Some suggested it's a little premature. And that said, the horror shows that were in the UK and Italy, they've got their cases tremendously out of, uh, under mm-hmm. control compared to where they were. Yeah, it's, I remember back in March, Italy was the first European country to be hit by coronavirus. And at the time, they had 2,000 total confirmed cases, 52 deaths, and we thought it was the end of the world. Now, you, you, like, think about what's happened since then. You know, they had a spike, they came back down. I certainly understand people are concerned about the EU opening their borders, but, you know, you have to give credit where it's due. They really implemented a lot of changes and they got their numbers under control. Uh, I guess the bigger worry is what happens if there's a second wave. Yeah, that is that, that is something. Um, the the confidence level, um, especially because Europe's generally been you know so friendly to us to travel to, especially the Western European countries. Many people have relatives. Many people go uh, for leisure. It it might be too late to really you know put plans together, and I think a lot of people are waiting this out. But I wonder if we'll see a lot of bookings at times we don't usually. November December isn't a big travel period to go. Mm-hmm. It's nothing like June July. Um, you don't exactly think spring break. Let's go to Europe. But I do wonder with the American situation if people say, I've still got my job, luckily enough. I've got the disposable income. I've been spending less money. Europe's what I'll do in that in that time span. Yeah, you know, I think for Canadians, you know, I was actually talking to G Adventures, and they were telling me bookings for Europe are up. Uh, but like you said, it's not going to be anytime soon. They're looking at later summer, late 2020, early 2021. So I think there's a lot of demand still for travel, especially among millennials and Gen Z. Uh, it's just a timing thing right now uh, because Europe has opened their borders. Naturally, a lot of Canadians are just looking and say, oh, well, Europe's opened up. What do I need to know? Uh, what quarantine or procedures are still in place? What are attractions looking like? Uh, so every single time another border opens up, it just presents more options. But I think Canadians are smart in doing their research before they actually book. Barry Choice joining us, personal finance travel expert on the Bill Kelly Show. Greg Brady in for Bill today. I, there's two big factors, obviously, with with a, a trip of this magnitude. There's the hotel. There's the airplane. And I think mm-hmm. the hotel is something people are an awful lot more confident in, um, that it's uh, it's a safe haven. People will stress about a seven-hour, eight-hour flight, won't they? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You're, before we came on, you are talking about you know, things being hot and sticky on public transportation. <laughs> and airlines are like, eh, I don't know if it's better. Uh, but I will say this, you know, I, in early March, I was still flying right before the lockdown happened. And I will, I will, I will say this, I had never been on a cleaner plane in my life at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, literally 90% of the people on the plane were wiping down the seats. They're wiping down the screens. They're wiping down the windows. The, the airline workers, they were spraying Lysol into the air. It's like, oh, I had never been cleaner. Yes, it's a bit disappointing that um, the middle seat will no longer be empty. But I certainly understand that. But I think a lot of Canadians now know that, Hey, you have to wear a mask when you're on an airplane. You have to take a temperature check. Obviously, those won't guarantee you won't get COVID-19. But I think the airline industry and the government of Canada are taking the right steps to try their best to ensure that if you are going to travel, and hopefully it's only for essential reasons at this time, that you're in the best environment possible given the circumstances. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because even even burying the best of times, um, somebody's got a loud hacking cough on a plane. Uh, we all get a little stressed out. You've got to, you know, if you don't feel 100%, you've got a, a young kid or a baby nearby. My thought is always, 
I, I wish they weren't near me, not because they're going to cry or annoy me, but I'm I'm worried I'll give them something I'm having. I've been I felt I feel like I've been deathly sick a couple times on planes, but that's when the ticket is. I've got to come back home. Um, I got it. I got sick from working outside or whatever, and I got no choice but to travel. And many people don't. Well, that's exactly it. Right with planes, you don't really have a choice, uh, but at the same time, you do. No one's forcing us to travel, right? Uh, I've always viewed travel as a luxury. I'm fortunate to be able to do it. But at the same time, you know, I just look at circumstances. Do I need to travel right now as far as uh, flying is concerned? Not necessarily. I think there's a lot of opportunities for Canadians to explore Canada so you can still get on a plane or, or drive. Uh, but, you know, maybe international destinations aren't for everyone right now. It's one of those scenarios, too, where, um, you know, European countries uh, recognize, and, and the, again, probably a cautionary tale in the States, that they to, to lay out everything you talked about, the airlines, to lay out everything about when you arrive in those countries, they'd better be doing everything well. They can't afford bad publicity. They can't afford bad stories. They can't afford mm-hmm. to close down some of the openings. I know they're opening pubs in the U.K. It's got some people stressed, the inside versus outside factor. But they just can't afford a rollback, and the, and they're watching that horror, if you will, economically and otherwise, play right out in front of them on on CNN if they want to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, again, going back to Italy, I, I remember at the start uh, these numbers were very alarming, and Italy they literally shut things down instantly mm-hmm. at the beginning of the pandemic. A lot of the incidents in Italy were in northern Italy, so right away they quarantined the area. And that clear, and people were like, "Why? Why are you quarantining us?" Blah blah blah. And now people see it's like, "Oh, that was a good thing." And I think a lot of European countries they learned from each other. They saw what Italy was doing, and then Italy saw what happened in Korea, and, and where they, and they took it very seriously. And you know, contact tracing was a big thing. And now you look at attractions; they're still practicing physical distancing. Um, you, you know, for example, if you were going to Paris right now and go up to Eiffel Tower. You, there's no elevator. You have to climb the stairs, and it's a one-way direction because they're trying to limit uh, the interaction in the people. But then you got the U.S., and, and their solution is like, hey, you know what? We're just not going to ser- serve alcohol, and that will pr- uh, promote people to physical distance. It's like, what? Like, it's <laughs> two completely different things. And, you know, we can joke and say, it's like, hey, maybe it's too early for the European Union. But I think that the EU, they really made sure. They looked at the numbers. Like, you know what? We're on a good course. We can open it up. And, and, you know, what's interesting about the European, they haven't waffled. They said, hey, if things pick up, we'll start banning countries instantly. We'll start shutting down. So, yeah, they're concerned about their economy, but there's no doubt in my mind that they're concerned about public health, not only for their own residents, but also for international travelers. It's amazing. I just found today's July or yesterday's July 1 numbers, and uh, Barry, Italy had 136 cases yesterday. That's a nation of what, 60, 61 million people, and, exactly. uh, and and we're a province of 15 million. We think we're doing amazing, and we have more <laughs> daily cases than the country of Italy every day. We do. Yeah, sometimes we get lost in that little bubble. You know, we compare ourselves to maybe other provinces, like, hey, we're not doing too bad, and we look at our neighbors to the south, all compared to the U.S., you know, where we're doing fantastic. And then you look at other countries around the world, and, and it kind of makes sense when you think about it. Italy and parts of Europe, they were hit first, and we're lagging behind by a few weeks. So hopefully our numbers continue to drop in two weeks. Uh, and that's why I think when the Canadian government extended their travel ban um, for outsiders for another month, it's just the right thing because we're just behind everyone else just by a touch. We are. Yeah. Uh, check them out. Moneywehave.com. That's the website. Barry Choi, thanks very much for the time. I appreciate it. Anytime. No problem. All right. Uh, so, yeah, Europe's got themselves well, well under control. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So Scott Radley is in for Scott Thompson today. You know him, you love him. Uh, of course, and uh, Hamilton Spectator columnist as well, and he's joining me uh, now. Um, you know, you're a good human being for doing this because you have your own show coming up. And if someone had called me at, say, 8.38 this morning, I'm not sure I would have had time to make a radio appearance. But you're doing it for me, and I appreciate it. Thank you, and I wish it was 8.28. I think Liz called me earlier than that, I know she woke me up. <laughs> she is, I don't know what the opposite of a night owl is, but she is on it. I, I'm getting messages from her at 5 a.m., and I'm like, I'm going to sleep another hour, uh, yeah, which makes her a harder-working human being than I ever have been. Well, and Greg, you know, uh, sports people, sports guys, we're not really morning people as a rule. We, we tend to do stuff later into the night. So, yes, uh, every time Liz calls, I'm happy to hear from her. I just wish it would be about four hours later. That's it. That's exactly it. Um, so you're, what you wrote in the in the Spectator about McMaster, it's it's an issue that uh, it's a really really important one. It's it's not one that's going away. And you're trying to get to the to the truth of the matter because we can have an allegation, we can have a defense of the party. Uh, in this case, right, the school, and in some cases, the football team accused of that allegation. And then we try and find out if the truth is somewhere in the middle. What's your what's your concept of where the story is at? and how much we're going to find out that gets us closer to the truth. So, well, the story, and I assume that uh, p- people know something about it, but there's allegations by a number of former black football players at McMaster of racism within the within the program, within the athletics department, and they cite certain examples. And, Greg, I mean, look, I, I, I've heard back from people, and I understand what some people are saying, where they say, oh, this is a complaint because somebody didn't get playing time uh, or someone didn't get to start or whatever. And I, I'm, with, I'm in agreement with people on those ones where you, that becomes that, okay, was it because somebody was black or was that player not good enough? Or, like Playing time is an impossible thing. Anyone who's followed sports knows you, you know, if you don't play, you're upset. Why are you not playing? I don't know. But that's, not, that, that's part of the discussion here. Mm-hmm. But I was looking at some of the other stuff, and I mean, I talked to Glenn Grunwald, who was athletics director at the time, and there are those gray area things, but there were also some that were not that. So there was a, a message board, and a bunch of the black players, I guess, decided not to go to the final team banquet because they were upset. And one somebody, and I don't know which player, but a player dropped the N-word onto the, the message board. Uh, oh, a white player, player or a black player? I, well, I'm assuming a white player. Yeah, I don't okay. know. Okay. Um, but the fact that it was it was a it was a a version of the N word, but there was no question what it was. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, again, we can we can try and break this thing down and say, okay, there are some issues here that may be a misunderstanding, or someone sees it one way, someone sees it another. But there are others where you say, no, there are there are other things going on. I mean, one of the players says that he was. Uh, a black player says he was called a monkey. Um, you know, again, some people will say, well, that's, you know, that's in 2020, I think most of us are smart enough to know that's not something you can call a black person and not have no. that person likely believe that it's a racial uh, comment. And, and, you know, look, we've all said things that perhaps in our life, Greg, that could be interpreted one way or another. And if you said something like that and it had no racial connotation and it slips out of your mouth and you realize it could be taken two ways, I think you, I think me, would immediately say, oh, wait a second, you know what? 
that word just came out, but that was not, I know how that could be taken. That's not how I meant it. And if you did, I'm really, really, really sorry. I, I don't get the intent. I don't get the sense from this player that anything was said about it. So, mm. you know, these, these are things that the athletics department is going to look into this. Now they're going to do some investigation with an external person. And I think, you know, what I'm told by, um, if you go on social media, you can see there are a lot of players, well, a number of players right now, former Mac Black players who have chimed in saying they felt the same way. And apparently 15 of them are already lined up, ready to give a statement or a report or something to this committee. So if you have 15 black former Black players, whether you want to say that it's a misunderstanding or it's not whatever, there's something going on. Yeah, this is, not one or, this is not one or two. If you have 15 witnesses to anything, I think most people would say there's something going on here we have to look at. Yes. Scott Radley, our guest, by the way, of course, uh, in for Scott Thompson coming up at 12 noon right here on 900 CHML. And he's talking about uh, his writings and findings in the uh, Hamilton Spectator in the MAC football program. You're right, because when when you started talking, it was sort of like it, it felt like, yeah, is this is this a player with a grudge? Is this a player that feels, you know, he wasn't treated properly or or may have felt uh, subversively like black players were treated differently than white players? But yeah, when 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 there's a, a, a that many people lining up, then it's not a, a he said he said or he said she said. Like I thought about that, Scott, with with the you know, I'm sure you're familiar with with the Leah Michelle thing about four weeks ago where. She had a cast member that was on Glee who blasted her and said, well, she was mean to me and she was entitled, uh, and, and that's fine. And, and other people have corroborated that, saying, yeah, she was snobby and entitled and despicable and we're right there with Jessica Mulroney. But I didn't I didn't spot the outright racism. I didn't in that particular – and it doesn't mean she isn't. It doesn't mean she is. But it, I, I felt it was a leap of logic to take it there. In this case – you mentioning that about using uh, a word like monkey in in a in a connotation to describe anybody of of black heritage, yeah, it's it's a total no fly zone in 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 you know, and it's been a total total fly zone probably for twenty thirty years in all reality. And again, uh, you know, like okay, the N word, nobody. I mean, you're not going to use it. Period. There are other things that have, as I said a moment ago, connotations that can be that if you say it to a white person, it means nothing. It's just a comment. If you say it to a black person, it's going to have a connotation. And if it were to slip out and you completely did not mean it that way, but all of a sudden you go, oh man, I, I you know, and, and I'm sure we've all said or, or almost said at some time something that we realized that could have been taken completely the wrong way. Not the way I intended, but could have been taken that way. You would think you would go out of your way to clarify that. And, and again, if the players are still saying, or this one in particular saying, you know, that he called it, it, it clearly, it doesn't sound like that was what happened. Um, now maybe, and we don't know who the person was because that information has not been granted. Um, but maybe that person has a completely different perspective on it, but we don't know who the person was to be able to go and ask them. Well, yeah, a story that won't end anytime soon. Uh, I'm sure you might address it in the next three hours, but the caseloads in Florida, uh, I, I know what a what a sports junkie you are, like myself, like a lot of listeners. Um, what's, your, what's your read on, on where we're at? we got three leagues. Let's take the three leagues, NBA, NHL, MLB. They're all trying vastly different scenarios, vastly different geography uh, as well. Uh, and MLB may be especially the, the most risky, Scott, uh, Scott, with trying to you know fly people over borders if the Jays get to play in Toronto, all over 
the country, checking in here, checking in there, and um, I, I'm not sure, even sure what the safest – the NHL feels like the safest plan, but they're not bubbling their players like the NBA is. Uh, no, and the NHL plan, uh, while I agree with you, because I've, we're hearing Toronto and Edmonton, and you go, okay, there's not many cases in Edmonton, and Toronto's doing better. I am still trying to get an answer from somebody, and I, don't, I think the reason I can't get it is because we don't know it. The flu season is in the cold weather months usually, and in the summertime, the flu tends to dissipate, and we're hearing some comments that maybe maybe in the warm weather is not as prominent with COVID. We don't really know yet, but you're talking now about regardless of where you're playing it, Obviously, hockey is played in a colder setting. And now, yes, if you're, if you're having people in close quarters and they're not in a bubble, it takes one person to leave yeah. and come back and bring it. See, I thought initially that baseball was going to be the safest one because, first of all, the game is played with the greatest space between athletes on the field. You don't have – it's not like football or hockey where there's a lot of close contact. Or well, I think it is except for the catcher. I think it is except for the okay. catcher and umpire. But you're right, yeah, enough, generally speaking. Enough. Yeah, it's not it's not a physical contact sport. You're right. But then you're talking about playing it in two of those states that have the heaviest amount of cases right now. And then, I mean, I was just I, I just assume, Greg, that when that the Jays were going to have to play their games somewhere else because you wouldn't be going across the border and back and forth because of our rules about quarantining. But now they're talking about maybe doing it. Look, the, the smartest thing, truly the smartest thing, and I, I'm surprised they haven't mentioned this yet there is a hotel right in roger center now i know they say the jays players are going to be staying in there why not make toronto one of the hub if you're going to have like a hub city or something for baseball and just put yeah. a whole bunch of the players in there now they're in the building keep everybody else out of the building if you're not in the building you don't come to the games you don't participate um I mean, I know there's not a million rooms in there, but it, I, I was I was thinking baseball was safest. Now I'm thinking it may be the least safe if they go ahead with this plan. Yeah, and I I was mentioning it um, before top of the last hour um, in that they're they're doing this MLS tournament down there, and six FC Dallas players have tested positive. But what what's sort of hidden under the headline is four tested negative the day they got there. And then they're doing daily tests or, or um, three times weekly tests. And then four got it just by being in the hotel. So either they got out and snuck out and broke the rules or the virus is already in the hotel. Like it's, it, it can't, there's no third option. It's one of the two. Well, th- there may be a third option and, and only a, not to, not to dispute, but I mean, I've written over the last number of months about a, a Hamilton actor named Nick Cordero. Who's oh yeah. Down in yeah. Los Angeles and who's been going through hell literally. And when he first went into the hospital, they did a test and it was negative. And then he was still in ICU and they did a test and it was negative. And it wasn't until the third test that they found that it was positive. And that's when they stuck something like down into his lungs. So it was, you know, like a deep, deep test. So, I, I, again, these are things that I don't really understand. Maybe mm-hmm. there are experts who do, but it seems like some of these tests are giving false hope or vice versa. And so, you know, I mean, how do you how do you know when you bring people into these these bubbles, even that they really even if they have come back with a negative result, how do you know they're really negative? That's so right. I assume what you're going to have to do is they come into the hotel and they're going to have to sit in their hotel room for three or four days by themselves, which they're going to love. I mean, you know, these guys who live in mansions and do whatever to just to sit in a single hotel room, they're going to love that. But 
I, I don't know what other answer there is. And no, there isn't. And, and you got and you got NBA players potentially in the same hotel room for ten weeks, or yeah. or uh, you know uh, NHL players. Uh, Jonathan Taves sitting in the same hotel room for eight straight weeks in Edmonton. He'll have a lot of fun with that. I know he's from Manitoba, <laughs> but give me a break, please. Uh, yeah, I, it, it's uh, <laughs> but but look, and you're you're right about the sneaking out with the soccer. I will bet all the money that I have, because we know this has been the case in every single time that anything has ever happened, at least one guy is going to be the idiot and decide he has to go out for some reason. Yes. Uh, it's inevitable, and there may even be a good reason why he feels yeah. he has to go, but someone will break the bubble, and then what? Then do you have to stop mm. everything again when you find out and test everybody for three or four? I mean, it's right. this thing just seems like it's just destined for disaster but who knows yeah the goal is to have more answers than questions as we move closer to it it's going the opposite way obviously for for various reasons hey um we'll be listening after 12 have a great show today and great reporting in the in the spectator on on a pretty important story in in the hamilton community thanks very much thanks Greg. the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml Hey, it's Craig Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.